So this morning, I would encourage you to turn with me to Matthew, the second chapter. Um, if you don't know this, I read, I do most of my stuff primarily out of the ESV. I like how it reads, and I like its accuracy to the actual Greek and uh, ancient Hebrew. Uh, so that's where I read from. I encourage you to do so as well, but uh, we have uh, Bibles for you. It is up here on the screen. Um, I, I love the way this goes, and uh, I'm going to make you guys do some... This isn't a Catholic church, but we're going to do some calisthenics. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word? Um, Verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that, had, that they had seen uh, when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They o- then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Father God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this story preserved, passed down for us. In its, in its form so that we can ascertain what it is that you would have for us in this text. God, I pray that your character shines through, that your word uh, uh, shines through, and it's not just my words. God, that, that you would take me out of this equation. God, speak to your people in a mighty way this morning. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So this is the story of the wise men, and I'm sure many of you have heard this before. Two things that I find extremely interesting in this is one, it doesn't say that the star um, was shining so that they would know where to find the birth of Jesus. It says that the star was shining because of the birth of Jesus. It wasn't, uh, who's seen that, that, that movie, The Star? My kids are absolutely obsessed with it. It's got a tonky talking donkey and a sheep, and it's really cute. It's a cutesy movie. But everything in this cartoon movie gets the historical uh, description wrong. It's completely wrong. The wise men were not traveling because Mary was pregnant with Jesus. The wise men were traveling because they were following a prophecy that was to be fulfilled by these things. So these are very wise men studying the stars, looking and knowing the, the text and, and the ancient Hebrew, the prophecies. And so they were looking for a king that had already been born. They are going looking for a child that had already been born. It's very interesting to me how we have spun this, that we've manipulated what is written in the text and brought out these things that it's nowhere to be found. Yet if you look anywhere or you ask anybody, uh, even many people who've raised in the church, been in, involved in church for decades, they, it's like there's still so much 
mystery and misinformation, uh, if we are allowed to say that now, uh, about the, the, the magi or these wise men. It's shrouded in so much mystery. And from uh, these traditions, we seem to know all the facts and the details. But as we look here, it's almost like they come into Scripture, and then they're gone, and they're never heard from again. It's just like, boop, boop, and we know nothing. Yet we've built entire traditions and songs and, and stories and all these things around these uh, enigmas, these, these, these mystery men. How many wise men were there? No idea. We have no clue. We assume three because there were three gifts, but it doesn't tell us how many. There could have been 20. There could have been two. We don't know. We have no clue. We know that it's more than one because the way that the the words work, right? Men, plural. Okay? So it's not one, more than one. At least two could be a hundred. Who knows? Where did they come from? There's a lot of speculation. A lot of people believe that they come from the area of Iraq. Some scholars believe that that's where they come from, that they are uh, Zoratish. It's this fun, fancy Persian priest line order. They think that's where they come from. But all that we know is that they came from the east. We have no clue where they come from. They could have come 20 miles from the east. They could have come 2,000 miles from the east. We don't know. They're here. They're gone. We have no, uh, we don't know. How long did their journey take? Did it take nine months? Did it take two years? Did it take 10 years? We don't know. We think we know things because we we can understand astrological calendar and natural explanations of things, but we don't know if that star that was uh, to herald the birth of the the Christ, the Messiah, lasted, if it was a natural occurring thing, because we've seen similar things. They just had uh, an occurrence recently, right? Did you guys see the, if you looked at the moon, you could see this shining bright star. Was it like that? Was it a naturally occurring thing? Or was it a supernatural event uh, orchestrated and ordained by by God to point to his prophecy fulfilled? Honestly, we don't know. I'd like to think the latter. But too many times we can get caught up on the the minor details of the story, and we miss out on the, the actual big picture of the story. doesn't matter, does it? Does it really matter how many wise men there were? Does it matter if Jesus was actually born in November or December or March? What matters is that Jesus was born. He lived that perfect life that we could not do. He became the thing that took on the wrath of God so we don't have to. Amen. These wise men show up mysteriously, and just as mysteriously, they're gone. But one thing I am certain about is that uh, the number of wise men and women increases every generation as people continue to seek out Christ. And I don't want us to miss this. Um, I didn't want to put it up there uh, because this morning as I was thinking through what what we were talking about today, I already had everything done and then I didn't have time to set up my computer. But there's a proverb that states that the, the beginning of wisdom starts with what? The fear of the Lord. When you seek out, diligently seek out Christ, it starts with the fear of the Lord. And in that is where you find wisdom. There's this fancy theological term called presuppositionalism, which is a fancy word. It means, what do you presuppose about what you think that you know? Like, what information are you bringing to the question? Like, um, how many days did it take to create the earth? Six. Seventh, he rested. (laughs) 
six days, right? Because I'm presupposing to come to that answer that the Bible is true. That God is who he says he is. He did what he set out to do, and the Bible is true. See, there's these presupposing, the presuppositions that you are bringing into this thing. So when we are looking at these things, as we are studying these things, I want us to presuppose that what is written is useful, it is true, and it's easily understandable. How many of y'all think the Bible's confusing sometimes? I do. But the Bible as a whole is, is easy enough to be understood by a toddler, and it is hard enough to be, to, so that a scholar can spend an entire lifetime and still not reach its depths. That's the beauty of the Word of God, that no matter how much you think you know, you never know it. You never know enough. You can always, you can always, God will always teach you, and He will grow you, and He will shape you more. So as we are looking at this story that we think we know, it is my prayer that God will teach us what it means to be wise. That's the gift of Christmas we're looking at today, wisdom. What is wisdom? What does it look like? What does it mean? Three facts we can learn is one, when I say man, take that as mankind, right? Okay, this isn't just for guys. This is for you too, gals. Uh, a wise man's journey is one of faith. I love how this starts. They, they come and they present themselves to Herod, and their first thing out of their mouth is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They have come to the sitting king of the Jews, as appointed by Caesar himself, to be the king of the Jews, and said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Like, the audacity of these people. Right? Can you th- What? They had faith, they had ex- this, this intense faith. What would prompt someone to leave the comfort of their homes to go on a dangerous journey? Movies, right? We have a ton of movies. They give us different reasons that the, the hero or the, the main character of the story would, would leave their, the safety of their own home uh, to go on a long, treacherous, perilous journey, right? Uh, romance, perhaps? Right, we have that that star cross thing where where um, there was this what was this show? Just movie came out. It's like Love and Monsters or whatever. This dude has like his the whole premise that he has to go like hundreds of miles because he thinks he loves this girl, and so he's like going through a, like a monster infested U.S. It's kind of kooky, but the main reason he was willing to go on this perilous journey is for love. Oh, for love, right? That's one reason. Well, what about wealth? How about money? Lots of money. What about faith? This faith in something that you cannot see. What does Hebrews 11 uh, 1 say? The faith is the evidence of things not seen, the, the substance of things hoped for. It, it, would faith take you out of your nice warm bed to send you on a perilous journey? One of which you could very well die on. You might get hungry. You might have to rely on the kindness of strangers. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? What a probing question. There is no doubt in their language that he had been born, right? Where is he? Not where's the place where he will be born or what type of... It is very succinct in what they are saying. Where is he? And they're assuming that the current king 
is okay with the fact that there is a young child who has been born to replace him. They are taking that step of faith, believing that others are also in that, that camp of faith. Where is he? They had seen the star. Evidence was real. Now where is he? They had faith that he was alive, that he existed. Now, now they were looking to find him. Their purpose established, find him. And so they were willing to risk every, everything to find him. They were willing to leave the safety of their homes to risk a perilous journey to seek a king. Can you imagine their neighbor's reaction? Like, let's, let's do a little, little thought thing. They're, they're, they haven't yet left. They see the star, the light comes on, they're like, oh, we got to leave. Let's start packing. And so their neighbors come over and they're like, hey, it looks like you're going on a trip. And they're like, yeah, where are you going? I don't know for sure. Um, how far is it? How long? Uh, don't know that either. Um, how long are you going to be gone? Do I need to water your plants? How's this, how long is this going to take? Well, I'm not quite sure of that either. The neighbor's response, you know, for wise men, you don't seem to know anything. This is that faith that they knew that Jesus the Messiah had come, and they had to do everything in their power to be in his presence. Wise men move in that spirit of faith. Remember in... Easter, I said that this year, the big, the big overarching theme of this year would be the reality of the resurrection. That if you truly believe that Jesus Christ died and came back to life to bear the wrath of God so that we didn't have to, that you would live your life completely differently, this is what that looks like. They didn't know the how or the when or the why. They just knew that it was. And so they, they went on a journey. But as I read through Scripture, you know they must have said the same things to Abram when he's, God rev- begins to lay down a redemptive story through Abram and who becomes Abraham and his seed, right? God tells Abram, get up and go. I have a promise to work out through you. He leaves his home for the promised land. They must have said the same things to Noah when he's building an ark, even though it had not yet rained or flooded or the, that type of thing. Can you imagine? They're, they're, the boats that they had at the time of Noah would have been little tiny like river vessels. Not a giant carnival cruise line sized ship. They must have said the same things to Noah. They, and when we read through the New Testament, they had to have said the same things to Peter, Andrew, John, James. When they leave their fishing nets to become fishers of men, what are you, crazy? Are you insane? Are you out of your minds? Not crazy, not insane, not out of their minds, but men of faith. You have to understand what is happening when Jesus calls someone to drop everything and follow him. Some had wives, some had children, some had established jobs, careers. Some had friends that they'd never see again. Yet when Jesus said, come, they did not hesitate. Can you imagine having faith like that? How many of us hesitate? 
Like, let's be honest with ourselves. When God calls us into something and we don't like it, because it means we're going to be uncomfortable, and we hesitate. Oh, God, can't you just do that somewhere else? Can't you just send somebody else? God, can't you? I'll do that, but can you make it a little bit easier for me? Can you set the stage so that I can just show up? God's journeys always involve faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. People of faith have been willing to respond to the challenges of the unknown over and over and over again down throughout history. I love, love, love history, and I cannot state that enough. I think I say that every Sunday. Because as you look back, hindsight is what? 2020. You have a clear picture. Like, I don't always see God working through my life right now. That's like a, a big thing. Like, I would, God, I just want to see you. Please just tell me. It'd be so much easier, a lot less stressful. But as you take a, take a time and you examine your life, right, that, that's already happened, you can't but see God moving. You can't but know that he has done something through you. And that right there is how we know that he's going to carry us on. People of faith respond to the challenges of the unknown because we know that God works. William Carey was a shoemaker, and one day he heard of the millions of people in India who had not heard the good news of Christ. He believed the Great Commission and believed it so much, go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? He believed that that verse was speaking directly to him. And so he picked picked up his things. He volunteers to go to India, but was told, young man, sit down. When God wants to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help. I love how God moves because Carrie goes anyway. He goes supporting himself and he's working diligently for seven years and doesn't see a single convert. Seven years years. Doesn't see a single convert. Think about where you were seven years ago. Are you doing that same thing now? Did you, in that seven years, have you done something you thought God was telling you to do, but gave up because you didn't see immediate fruit? I have. Let's be honest. Seven years, not seeing a single convert, but by the end of his life, He got to see hundreds of churches planted. He got to see thousands of people come to saving faith in Christ Jesus. And today he is known as the father of modern missions. He is, without a doubt, a modern example of a man of faith. And if uh, it doesn't take much to peel back the layers to find men and women just like him. But too busy, we're, we're worried about who Brad and... Brad Pitt and Angelina are with now, or all these people on TV, or who's doing what with what Facebook thing. And we're so focused on distractions that when we, we, we can't see what God is doing around us. God's journey and wise men 
move through faith. The second point is that a wise man's journey is one of worship. So there's, there's a, a, a big thing in thinking and, and, and understanding when you're looking at, at Christ and Scripture and trying to understand how things work. What does worship look like in its entirety? What is worship? Is it songs? Is it coming together and hanging out, praising God? Is it these things? When we look at these wise men as they are going to visit the Christ, they're doing it so that they can present themselves as worship to the new king. See, worshiping isn't just the thing that spiritual people do. Worshiping is setting yourselves, sacrificing yourself to present yourself to something else. Whether it's football, Marvel movies, some new band, some latest craze, some some workout regimen, or whatever it is, we worship something and what it is that we're doing because we are always setting ourselves for something. Why do you wake up? To go to work? To have fun? To hang out with my friends? To do these things? Whatever the reason is that we are waking up, that we are doing life for, is what we are worshiping. They bring these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In this ancient time, these aren't cheap things. These are exceedingly expensive things. And they have symbolism that is tied to them. Nothing is by coincidence, and nothing is by accident. Especially if it's laid out in Scripture, everything has a meaning. Words are extremely important. Actions are even more so. So when we see these things and the actions of these men, are what they're doing, there is symbolism. Gold represents wealth. It is a gift for a king. They are acknowledging that Jesus is king. Frankincense, the sap of a tree that was dried and hardened, used to incense to, as a worshiping thing to God. Thus we see they are bringing frankincense as a gift for the deity of Jesus, acknowledging that he is God. The third, we see myrrh, and it's a fragrant perfume that in this time period was used to anoint the dead. To embalm them, to preserve them, to get them ready for that next life. Acknowledging that Jesus is the sacrifice. Acknowledging that Jesus must die to fulfill the promise of God. There's a ton of symbolism here. But as we are looking at these things... And it could have been just a mere coincidence that these were the gifts that they had, like had it on the shelf, but it wasn't for God. God, God sovereign, and he orchestrates and ordains how these things take place. One of the things that helps me point to the sovereignty of God, see, here's the word sovereignty, and this is a big hang-up for a lot of people these days. Sovereignty means um, uh, complete and supreme authority. So when we say God is sovereign, it means he has complete and supreme authority, whether we like it or not. Right? And the, the, how does that look and how does that uh, the flesh out in our lives? We can't fully understand. 
Because that means that there are implications of that statement that we don't like. Whether you like it or not, the Bible points as such, right? And so when we see these things, one of the things that points me to, to the sovereignty of God, did you realize that when God created the heavens and the earth, after he was done creating, nothing has been created since? Naturalists, a.k.a. secular uh, academia, would tell you they have, a, they have a rule for this. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. It's Newton's second law, saying matter cannot be created, but it is destroyed. Planets, galaxies, all that stuff that we're getting all these cool pictures of, that, that, there hasn't been any more created since the sixth day of creation. So when God is painting these pictures at creation, he's doing for our benefit. He's doing for us because he knows that the people before we come now with our technology, what, they didn't even have any hope of knowing what is out there. But God in his sovereignty is like, let me show you how big I am. And so they, they were actually sending like a, a, a new camera up there that is like 100 times better than the Hubble telescope. I don't know if it actually took place already or if it's about to. Everything got pushed off uh, from COVID. But when we were getting all these images back, like there was a picture that the Hubble telescope took that was like spent days focusing on a blank black spot. And then they blew it up and you see like, thousands of different galaxies and like billions and trillions of stars. Like God did that so that we would understand his majesty. Now, you want to talk about the sovereignty of God? Why else would he do that? Because there's a time where we think we're bigger than we are. And he wants to remind us that he's so much bigger than we can even imagine. But anyway, why do we worship? What is the object of our worship, and what does our worship require? Three big questions we have to answer to come to a a proper understanding. Worship always involves sacrifice. I can guarantee you that you would have 800 better places to be this morning than right here with me, listening to me run my suck for a while, right? What was the price to be paid for the wise men's worship? What was it? Was there a price? First off, was there and what was it? What did they do? What, what was the cost of their worship, their journey, right? You bet they had to pay a price. They had given themselves to this journey. Traveling those days, not very comfortable. They don't just hop into a suburban, fill it up and go. It was very perilous, very treacherous. They didn't know if they would have clean water. They didn't know if they were going to get... Have you been to the Middle East? I've been there a couple times. It's not a pleasant experience. The bugs alone are out of control. Then you have the people. They're just as crazy. I think it's because they don't have McDonald's, but that's on me. There's a price to be paid. The wise men had sacrificed their comfort to find the king and to worship him. Listen to what David says about sacrifice in 2 Samuel. I love this. He says, But the king said to Aaronah, But I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. 
Do you get what he's I will not give an offering to God. I will not worship God with something that doesn't cost me anything. How many of us, when we are coming together for our, our tithes and offering time, we're like, well, I have a little bit extra. Here you go. It doesn't, doesn't bother me. It is not a sacrifice. How many of us say, well, if I have a little bit of time on this side, then I'll go serve. Then I'll go do something on behalf of God. And then if I, oh, if I don't have to work on Saturday night or Sunday, then I'll go to church. Worship, it, it, it costs something. It is a sacrifice. And if we can't come to a place within our own worship that costs us something, guess what? You, my friend, need to reevaluate your salvation. The God in which you believe. And who is the arbiter of your salvation? So David bought a thing, paid for it, so that he can use it in worship. How many of us are sacrificing so that we can come to the, to the foot of the cross? How many of us are sacrificing anything, if at all, to come to worship the king? Changes the dynamic, doesn't it? Romans says it this way. It says in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To truly worship requires sacrifice. You know the greatest gift that you can give to God? Not that God wants a gift from us, right? But when we understand our our relationships to, to the grand scheme of things, to God, and how insignificant we are compared to him. And all these things, all these truths that could either, one, make us really depressed because we think too highly of ourselves, or make us really excited that though we are despicable, wretched, detestable human beings, God still delivers us into himself. And that, there is joy there. There is hope there. There is peace there. But we can't think too high of ourselves or we'll never get to that spot, okay? The greatest sacrifice that you can give in light of Romans 12 is yourself, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What does holy mean? We have this, 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 there's this movement that's driving me nuts, but it's called the holiness movement. And in and of itself, it's not bad. It, it derives its, its, its main tenets from be holy, therefore, as I am holy. As Jesus is saying, be holy. What is holy? What does it mean to be holy? They're not defining the right terms. Does, does holy mean to be without sin? Does holy mean to be perfect? Does holy mean to be without blemish? Because that's what a lot of people believe, right? That's what we believe. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart for God's purpose. There's another area of the Bible that says, do we not use certain, we we use clean uh, vases or good-looking vases for this, and we use detestable vases for this purpose, and everything has its purpose as it is ordained by God. Everything has its purpose. Didn't know I was going to get this feisty this morning. But when we look at what is happening here, when, with that mindset, everything has its purpose, be holy, be acceptable to God. 
does the, does the clay have any right to say to the potter, make me this way? I love how Paul says things because it like paints a picture in my mind that is understandable. And again, that's Bible. It's not that difficult. It's not that complicated. Just get in there and read it. Be holy. Be separate. Be set apart. Be acceptable to God. Present yourself as that living sacrifice. Say, but I have given nothing to him today. I say, you have this morning by showing up here, giving God something. You've given him this hour or so that we're here. You thought you've given it to me to listen to me? No. That's, guess what? God has given me an opportunity to be his vessel this morning, and you have come here and given him an opportunity to speak to you. You have given something this morning. You prepared for a journey. You got up, you got dressed, and you came ready to seek a king. You got into your car, you used your gas, you came to church. Some of you, when the offering plate comes around, you put money into the plate to help pay the kingdom expenses, maintaining the church, heat, water, electricity, that stuff has to be paid for, you sacrifice. When you put your offering into that plate, you help God support his purposes. Some really cool things. And most of us probably never think about that, do we? Like, what does it mean when you come to church? When you come to be in fellowship with God's church? You came today as a living sacrifice without even realizing it. Does it mean that you, you have to uh, not smoke, not drink, not eat good food and all this other fun stuff that a lot of people like to say? I'm not saying that that's your own convictions. It right? doesn't mean you have to do this like 12-step program of perfection to come to present yourself to worship the king. None of that was in even remotely sought out or, or explicitly put down as we see the wise men. They didn't come perfectly dressed. They didn't come do these things. We've added that to the story, but we don't know that. We don't know the, the, the steps that they went, went about to come present themselves to the king. God more than anything, more than everything else that I have, what God wants is me. That's a beautiful thing. He wants your heart. He wants your attention. He wants it all. The Bible speaks of God being a jealous God. He doesn't want half and half. How many, when, when you, are, you remember back to when you're getting married, and us guys, we, we, when we have friends, we're pretty tight-knit friends, right? And when we get married or when we start spending some time with our significant other before the marriage, our friends, a lot of times, they start getting, man, you're not the same you were. You don't spend time with me anymore. You don't do this anymore. You don't do that anymore. Like, no, our affections have changed. They have shifted. And if you bring your friend or something else into the marriage that isn't your wife or God, I guarantee you there will be trouble and there will be strife. You want to know the funny thing is? Jesus is God. This is where my, my mind starts playing things because the, 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 the truth of Scripture is relevant to life. Life isn't relevant to the truth of Scripture. It's the other way around. We, we've flipped it backwards. We want to, oh, let's, let's, let's present the message of the gospel of Christ to the world that will want to hear it. I can guarantee the world will never want to hear it. We bring the world and we line it up with the truth of Scripture, not the other way around. Okay? So, 
When we are looking at this thing, and you read through the scriptures, you'll, you'll find that the church is the bride of Christ, right? It's the bride. And so what happens when uh, a husband and wife aren't connected totally? If, if there's friends, sometimes that get more important, or there's children, sometimes that become more important, or there's parents that sometimes become more important. If there's anyone else in that relationship that is more important than the husband or wife, what happens? Jealousy. Erosion. Love is not patient. Love is not kind. It's the antithetical uh, reading of, 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 of Corinthians, right? That, that love is. The same is true. When Jesus wants all of you, 100%, more than anything else that you have, buying roses isn't going to fix the situation. Presenting a, a gift to Jesus isn't going to fix anything. He wants you. God is a jealous God. In response to this question, or in response to this truth, I have a question. There's only one thing that's left in this. If God is so willing Do you realize what it took for us to come into reconciliation with God? Do you realize what it took, the measures that God took so that we can be with him again? He had to send his son, not just to... A lot of times we got this image, and it comes from... like I, I think it comes from youth groups, because teen minds are very simple, so you have to explain things in a simple understanding, and it just kind of goes from there. Um, you guys ever seen that picture where there's this cavern and you got us here and God here, and then there's like a cross or Jesus in the middle <laughs> to get us there, right? No, that's, that's not what it took. What it takes is there's, there's no cavern. Jesus, God isn't on the same plane. He's not in the same realm. He's not even remotely close to the same realm because God is separate from sin. And what it took for God to reconcile us to him is for us to wear the blood of his son, Jesus wasn't a bridge like we think of it. He was the mediator, yes. But he wasn't that thing that we can walk across. No, we had to take his blood and put it over ourselves so that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. Not a clean version of Tony. Do you see that? Do you see the picture here? You guys ever see like that movie Hannibal and he like wears people's faces? <laughs> yeah, when God sees us, he doesn't see us, he sees his son. It's graphic. It's kind of grotesque when you think about what Jesus had to go through. He did all of that so that we can come into right relationship with him. Do you see that? Not so that we can be better versions of ourselves, because there's no version of us that, that will work, okay? Now, in response to that truth, the only question I can come up with is, what are you willing to do for him? In 
And if you truly understood and understand what it is that God has done on your behalf, what are you doing for Him? Not to earn it, but because of it. Am I willing to go on a journey to worship God? Am I willing to give up my comfort zone to follow Christ? Uh, Am I willing to be uncool, unpopular, to be labeled all these nasty, dirty words on social media now? Racist, bigot, misogynist, whatever they want to throw at at the church nowadays. Am I willing? Because God was even more so. And the third point, I know I have another point, we'll get there. A wise man's journey is one of change. Verse 12, Matthew 2. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Isn't it interesting that after they worshiped Jesus, they could not go back the same way that they had come? Now, I might be reading too much into it, but I find, that, again, there's no coincidence, I find that interesting. After they come to Christ, after they come to the king, they could not go back the way they came. (laughs) How many of us, when we had come to Christ, could not go back to where we were? Could not go back the way that we came? That is a beautiful picture for me. And again, I might be reading too much into it, but man, that makes me so excited. Because when we come there, when we come to Christ, when we come to Christ, we've come because we realize that we can't do it on our own. And we can't go back. Right? But the the, the truth is is that you you, you won't. When you come to Christ, you won't go back. There is change. There is real change. Once you meet God, you will never be the same. An encounter with God changes things. It changes you, doesn't it? It's always been that way. And you leave either one of two ways. Either glorifying the name of God or cursing the name of God. You don't go back to just riding that neutral line. Yeah, people do come to God and they leave hating him because they don't like the message that he brings. It reminds me of that rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, uh, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus tells him, do these things. He's like, all your commands I have, I have kept. And then what does Jesus say? He's like, then sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. And he's like, oh, I can't do that. I'm sad now, right? We see him leaving sad and brokenhearted. But let's do something else here. Let's look at the encounter in John 4. When you see the woman of the well encounters Jesus, what happens? She has nothing but shame. Jesus meets her in the noon time of day, in the middle of the day, in a time where people don't go to the well. He comes to this well and finds this woman in her shame, hiding, not wanting to be exposed or have those awkward conversations. And Jesus says, guess what? I know, but you ain't got to stay that way. And she leaves overjoyed. She sprints back to the people and says, you got to meet this man. You don't encounter God and leave the same way you came. That's awesome to me. Like, I don't know about y'all, but I'm excited. Jesus, we, we see Jacob, right? Jacob wrestled with God, and he never walks the same the rest of his life. Isaiah steps into the presence of God, and he proclaims in Isaiah 6, 
uh, verse 5 says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's never the same. When people encounter God, when people encounter Christ, they are never the same. Have you guys ever met somebody who was just so, they're like mean or they're like not a good person to be with and you, you don't like being around them just because they're just like a bad person? And then you, you find out like later on in life, they come to know Christ and then you're like, oh my gosh, I got to see how, what it's all about. And they're a completely different person. And you know that there's by no means under heaven other than Christ that that could have happened. That's an authentic encounter with the real Jesus. Never the same. Job questions God concerning his suffering. We see we're introduced to Job in the book of Job, and we we got like 30-some chapters of of Job going back and forth of God letting Satan torment him and back and forth, and then then his, his friends torment him, and it comes to the point where even his wife says, curse God and die. And then we, we find Job's finally had enough, and he begins to question God. God, why would you do this to me? I have done nothing to deserve this. I have done nothing against you. And then God lays down the law. And I love that encounter in Job 39 and the beginning of Job 40, where God says, where were you when I put this thing together? How, who do you think you are? And then Job, after being smacked in the mouth by God, literally, no, okay? This is a figurative thing. He smacks in the mouth. And then Job says in verse 4 of Job 40, he says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job met God and was never the same. That is what happens when we walk in the presence of God. We become changed. We become something else. The Bible calls us a new creation. In Colossians, uh, the idea of Colossians 1, Jesus becomes the firstborn above creation. Not that Jesus was ever born, but he becomes that which the world is reconciled through. And when you read that in the Greek, when you read that in its original intent, it says it's a new humanity. It's a whole different line of man, of people, born by the blood of the second Adam, born by the blood and out of the blood of Christ. We are something else entirely. When we walk into the presence of God, we become changed. That's what happened when the wise men when they, when they encounter Christ, they were changed. This is what happens when we encounter Christ. Things become different. We look at the world through a different lens. We interact with people differently. We look at people differently. We, we understand that more often than not, they're bad because they can't help it, because their, their wills are slave to sin. And you begin to look on them with, with pity. And your heart begins to yearn for them, that they would come to a salvation in Christ. It's Christmas. And when we hear the story of, this wise, of these wise men, I want us to understand why they're, why they're considered wise. 
Why are they wise? Because they had faith. They were wise because they worshipped. They were wise because they let this child change them. And how about you? This is my question. I want to put the ball in your court. Are you looking for a change? Are you looking for something different? Because to me, that's what Christmas signifies. It's not about a baby. The first Christmas was about a baby. But that baby didn't stay baby. Ain't no Ricky Bobby, sweet baby Jesus stuff going on. That baby became a man, lived a life that I could not. For my sins and took the full wrath of God. That's what this is about. This is what Christmas is about. And if you want to experience that change, I highly encourage you, get into your word. Get into, ask me questions. I'm on Facebook. You can ask me. If I'm not approachable here to you, Facebook's easy. Let's dive deep. Find Christ this Christmas, and I guarantee you that you will be changed. Things will be different. Step out in faith. Seek him as the wise men did.